District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Happy Monday. There is a lot of conservation-themed, energy-themed content coming your way. A splattering of interviews, monologues that go deep into hotly debated topics, news updates. With it being the start of October, I figure we could insert some fun interviews. I spoke to Jace Elliott with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, and Jace is actually someone I haven't met personally speaking, but years ago when he was a graduate student, I think at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I spoke to him for a field and stream piece talking to college students, those in undergrad and graduate level studies about their hunting clubs and all. And so it came full circle. I think he reconnected with me recently and asked if he can come on and talk about deer behavior, deer hunting in Iowa. And even though most of my listeners don't likely hail from Iowa, we we do have a lot of Iowa listeners. I have friends in Iowa. So I think it's fun and interesting to get to know people especially young people working in state wildlife agencies and we're not exclusive to just profiling people in Virginia and mid-Atlantic we will talk to anyone from across the country so I appreciate Jace for coming on the podcast and talking about his job deer hunting deer conservation and so much more really fascinating individual so here's my conversation with Jace Elliott who is an Iowa DNR deer research specialist enjoy we're joined by Jace Elliott, who is a deer research specialist with the Iowa DNR. I first connected with Jace when he was studying his master's program, or maybe it was undergraduate. Jace can remind me again uh, of that. Uh, And I wrote a piece featuring his remarks in Field and Stream actually three years ago. So it's good to connect and come back full circle and have him come talk. So Jace, thank you so much for joining District of Conservation. Good to chat with you. Hey, thanks, Gabriella. It's, It's good to talk with you as well. Could you introduce yourself to my listeners? What's your background? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So as you mentioned, uh, my name is Jace Elliott. I'm the deer research specialist um, for the state of Iowa. I work with the Department of Natural Resources here. And as you mentioned, uh, yeah, we first connected when I was uh, the president of the Badger Hunting Club at UW-Madison. And uh, since I've I've gone and gotten my master's degree at, at Auburn University in the deer lab there, where I uh, was able to sort of begin my specialty with white-tailed deer. And um, I've since graduated that program and and taken this position here at at the Iowa DNR. That's awesome. And did you always have an interest in the great outdoors? I assume you probably are a hunter. You started fairly young. Correct me if I'm wrong there. What was your story? No, that's exactly correct. Um, I have pretty much been hunting since I I could. My grandpa was uh, very instrumental in that. He, you know, took me out from a young age and, and exposed me to it. And uh, I think I loved it from day one. I, I was uh, harvesting deer as soon as I could when I was, you know, 11, 12 years old in Wisconsin. And uh, I've, I haven't missed a year since. I even, you know, living across the country, I've, I've made my best effort to return and uh, return to the deer camp. And, and so, yeah, I've, deer is really what kind of got me into hunting. But uh, I do love to pursue uh, pretty much any, any species out there, small game, uh, waterfowl, turkeys. So, 
uh, yeah, definitely uh, have a strong background in hunting, and and that's certainly what what sort of propelled me in this uh, direction career wise. I think a background in hunting, having some personal connection, and same with fishing, I think probably goes a long way at the DNR. And could you talk about what led you to work for Iowa's DNR and what you currently do there in your position? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I would say that that's correct. You know, I it's certainly not a requirement, but I think that that having a intimate uh, relationship with you know, consumptive use and, and fishing or hunting and just sort of familiarity with those, uh, with those practices does, does go a long way in this field. Um, in terms of what I do. So as I mentioned, I'm the deer research specialist, uh, for the state and, uh, really a big part of my job is, uh, monitoring deer population trends statewide. Uh, so I can start a little bit with how deer populations are monitored in Iowa. Um, and we're very fortunate to have several powerful data sets that help us to estimate these trends. So these include uh, an annual spotlight survey, which I help organize. That's basically a, a staff-led effort where, uh, you know, different members of the Wildlife uh, Bureau here or conservation officers will uh, drive 50-mile transects in each county and and sort of collect uh abundance data on, on different species, including deer. Uh, there's also the bow hunter observation survey, which is just what it sounds. We are uh, very fortunate that we have engaged and passionate hunters in Iowa that uh, provide data in terms of what uh, what species they see while they're bow hunting, and, and that also includes deer. Uh, we also look at harvest numbers year to year as sort of a, a index of, of abundance. Uh, Besides that, we also factor in deer vehicle collision and roadkill data, and we receive that from the Iowa DOT. Uh, that's just another piece of the, the puzzle here. So a big part of my job every year is to summarize all these different indices uh, to inform an, an overall deer population trend line. Uh, and we do this for the statewide, regional, and, and county scale. You know, the data that I just went over, it's super important to our deer management program, but I think it would be pretty foolish for me to assume that I have the whole deer population story captured in my statistics. Uh, you know, statistical models are very powerful tools, but they're not perfect. So we make a lot of effort to listen to what our local wildlife biologists uh, are hearing and seeing on the ground in each region. So, you know, these are the people that spend most of their days in the field, observing wildlife, uh, interacting with local landowners, and uh, they often have some valuable insight on what's really happening. I, I work in central Iowa, so you know, like I said, it would be fairly foolish for me to assume I know what's going on in, in far western Iowa, uh, for example. So I guess you could say our deer management program is kind of a, a hybrid approach of statistics and in the field observations. Uh, and I think that's how it should be. I think in most states, there's that similar model. I have to look into how we do it in Virginia, but I have no doubt it's a small departure from what you guys are doing. I think most of the right. agencies kind of have a template. You know, every state has their own way of doing things, but I think they follow a similar model, but they put their own spin to it. But that's really a fascinating yes. insight into, into how that goes. And can you explain how hunting, for instance, is important for maintaining healthy deer populations for anyone who perhaps oh, absolutely. is questioning that? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And, and yeah, hunting is absolutely the main part of how we manage deer uh, in Iowa. So, um, you know, I've talked a little bit about population trends. Uh, but when it comes to our our annual decision making process on on how we're managing population levels, uh, that really happens by hunting. So a lot of things are sort of fixed in our system. We 
don't set a quota on how many uh, resident hunters can can buy a license, for instance. Uh, but what we do have, uh, what we do play a role in adjusting is our uh, county antlerless quotas. So as as that suggests, it, it's management at the county level. Uh, so, you know, back to the data that I was talking about, it, it doesn't matter so much uh, as to what direction the population is trending, but rather how it relates to the population goals in each county. So if we have counties that we're seeing overabundance issues, uh, and this would manifest by a lot of crop damage complaints or deer vehicle collisions, then we're going to try to reduce that population to a more acceptable level. Uh, and on the other hand, if we have counties where populations are struggling, let's say hunters are having difficulty filling tags, then we're going to make decisions that hopefully allow those populations to recover. So the main approach we use uh, is, you know, I'm circling back to that question you had is our county antlerless tag quotas. And, uh, you know, the reason that they're antlerless quotas is that deer populations are by far more sensitive to antlerless harvest. Uh, so this is logical because those deer are uh, uh, actually producing offspring as opposed to the bucks. Uh, for example, if we have 100 does in an area, those 100 does are very likely to be bred whether we have 100 bucks or 25 bucks in that area. So the number of bucks is not very important on next year's uh, fawn production. Uh, but by harvesting more does, then we're reducing next year's fawn crop. And if we reduce doe harvest, then we're putting more fawns on the ground for the following summer. So that's sort of the mechanism, uh, the lever rather, that we have to pull in terms of actually affecting change with deer population at the county level. And of course, that's happening by uh, hunters buying tags uh, and, and going out and harvesting deer. Now, if we didn't have that option, if, if you know, let's say deer hunting didn't exist, we would have uh, an extraordinarily difficult time keeping deer populations at a manageable level. Um, we would, you know, maybe 20, 15, 20 years ago, we saw more white-tailed deer throughout the Midwest than, than has likely ever been. Uh, and, and people were still actively hunting during that time. So, you know, deer vehicle collisions, crop damage, all, sort of all of those uh, negative externalities, if you will, would just be amplified and, and through the roof if hunting uh, wasn't a viable option for, for management. So back to that county quota, you know, every year we determine whether the, that quota, uh, which can range from anywhere from zero to 4,000, depending on the county, uh, is in line with our population objectives. And then we, we adjust them if needed. Yeah. Thank you for providing that info. And obviously, since hunting is not a threat to the deer population, what in your view is, are there any con concerns to be aware of? I know CWD, chronic wasting disease is one, and you were alluding to another illness or virus rather to be aware of as well. So could you list what actually does pose a threat to the deer population in your corner of Iowa? Definitely. Um, before I get into diseases, I think uh, certainly a threat that that is posed to the deer population um, or rather the deer management system as we know it is uh, hunter recruitment is, is, you know, that's a pretty hot button issue. It's certainly not, uh, we're, we're not seeing more white-tailed deer hunters for the most part uh, throughout the country. In fact, the number is, is seeing sustained declines. And it's a bit concerning because if, if we don't, if we no longer have that base of hunters that uh, are doing a lot of the heavy lifting for population management, then we're going to see the floor kind of fall out uh, from these, these really uh, great systems that we have to manage uh, the most economically valuable species in the country. 
So, so that's, I guess what I would say about hunter recruitment. Um, I don't want to get all doom and gloom, but it, it certainly is important to, uh, you know, maintain the system and current structure we have in terms of other threats, you know, that are, that are present today. I would say CWD is certainly uh, the biggest threat to white-tailed deer in Iowa, uh, at least. Um, another would be EHD, but, you know, they're very different and I'd be happy to, uh, sort of talk about the differences there. If, Please. If, uh, awesome. So CWD is, is known as chronic wasting disease. Uh, it's in a class of diseases called TSEs, and I won't get too into the weeds here, but that stands for transmissible spongiform encephalopathy. And, uh, basically it's, it's in a category of diseases. It's, it's not a virus. It's not a bacteria. Uh, but they're caused by uh, prions, which are the causative agent. Now, these prions are misfolded proteins that have the ability to, to transmit that misfolded shape onto other healthy proteins. They're diseases of the brain that creates uh, plaque deposits, and that leads to sort of a sponge-like appearance uh, in the infected animal's brain. And now, what's really uh, worth mentioning with CWD is that it's 100% fatal. Now, what that means is that uh, any deer that comes down with CWD uh, will not uh, survive the disease. That's not to say they'll necessarily die from CWD. Something else could kill them in the meantime. Uh, but but basically, there's no recovering uh, from this disease. There, there have been no incidents to date that we know of of any individual animal actually uh, you know, recovering from the disease. So uh, this disease is... Uh, uh, not quite as widespread in Iowa as it is other places, but it, it, it is becoming a larger threat. Another interesting aspect of CWD is that there's generally a lag time before infected animals begin to show any signs of the disease. Uh, we're talking about 18 to 36 months after they're infected. So basically this complicates disease management because infected deer uh, are potentially spreading CWD to other deer during that incubation period. Uh, and this is why most CWD positive deer that are harvested by hunters appear to be perfectly healthy. Uh, however, once deer do begin to show these clinical signs of the disease, uh, which includes drooling, poor balance, uh, sort of wasting away, they generally don't survive very long and, and die quickly after. So now let's compare that to EHD, which is epizootic hemorrhagic disease. A lot of hunters are also familiar uh, with this disease. And uh, these diseases are often compared. And the reason is that they both lead to dead deer. Now, you might even hear EHD referred to as a more deadly disease uh, compared to CWD, but I'm definitely going to say that that's false. Uh, remember that CWD is 100% fatal. Uh, EHD is not. So com compared to CWD, which is uh, again, a disease of, of prions. EHD is a viral disease, and it affects deer mostly during the summer and early fall months. In this way, it's sort of acute uh, as opposed to chronic. So EHD can absolutely devastate deer populations in local areas. And we've seen that very recently in, in the 2021 outbreak in the Great Plains states. There were some major differences uh, between EHD and CWD though, that I wanna get into. So uh, as I mentioned, EHD can be survived. Not every deer that comes down with it will die. Uh, 
In fact, there's different subspecies of white-tailed deer in the country, and, and some of them are actually more resistant to EHD. Uh, for example, deer in Texas and the southeastern United States are more likely to survive EHD than deer in the Midwest or Great Plains. Uh, and this is likely because EHD has been around in those regions longer. So that kind of creates a built-up resistance uh, to the disease. So the good news is uh, in places like the Midwest and Great Plains is that EHD is unlikely to continue being the problem that it is today uh, in the coming decades. So deer infected with both of these diseases, in terms of human consumption, yep. what does that do? Because I know I had read previously that consuming it, not the best thing to do, although it wouldn't kill humans. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what does it do for humans if you are to eat with the current available science? If you consume yep. deer that is infected with either of these, how does that impact humans? So there's, we know for almost certain that, that humans are not going to contract EHD. Um, this, so one thing I forgot to mention about EHD is it's not spread from deer to deer contact, but rather uh, there's sort of an intermediate agent, which is uh, insects or mostly biting midges that actually transmit the disease. Uh, so an infected midge will bite a deer and, and spread the disease that way. Uh, it's never been known to affect humans and, and we don't really think that's possible. So there's, there's almost no, uh, transmissible risk from deer to humans in terms of EHD. Uh, CWD is maybe a little bit different. Now we don't have any cases of humans, uh, ever contracting the disease that we know of. There's certainly been a lot of CWD positive meat consumed by humans. Uh, as far as we know, it doesn't seem to occur. Uh, but but that's not to say that it never will. Another example of a TSE is mad cow disease. And decades ago, when mad cow disease was uh, a prevalent issue in, in the UK, it took years, but eventually humans contracted a similar disease from eating mad cow positive beef. Uh, this disease is known as Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease, and, and perhaps some listeners have heard of that. Mad cow disease, yeah. Yes. So mad cow disease actually mutated, for lack of a better term, and was able to cross the species barrier into humans. Now, we don't know if this is also possible with chronic wasting disease, uh, but we think that we think that it's not impossible. So what I'm getting at is there's a risk uh, to, to consuming CWD positive meat. Uh, the, CD, the CDC recommends that if you know a deer is positive uh, to not eat it. And, uh, you know, I think all state agencies echo that same sentiment, but the only way to really know if your deer is positive is to get it tested. Uh, so that's going to allow you to make an informed consumption decision, but also provide valuable data to state agencies. That's valuable information to know. Cause I was totally unaware of second disease that you mentioned. So thank you for enlightening me and also our listeners too on that. I think we were talking before going on air about the importance of putting accurate information about hunting, uh, wildlife conservation. How important is it for people in media or in the public square to put out the science and put out the information that your agency and agencies like yours do? Well, I think very important. You know, one of the big goals um, in a department like the DNR is, is to make that information and data accessible uh, to you know, the average citizen. Um, now the media often 
takes a very important role in, in disseminating that information and, and a lot of times does that very well. But uh, I will emphasize that it's, you know, definitely important to go to the source uh, when you're you're considering important data. Um, you know, nobody's perfect. And, you know, it, there's sort of this uh, this dichotomy, right, where where as scientists, we may not always be the best communicators, um, but journalists and uh and, and the very effective communicators may not always be uh, incredibly trained in science. So finding a happy medium is important. And, and you know, always, uh, you know, I can speak for the Iowa DNR that, that we try to make our information and data very accessible. Um, so, you know, I would encourage anybody who uh, wants to look into any of these issues to, you know, certainly uh, look at, at what the um, state agencies are, are putting out. I always tell my colleagues in media that if they ever write anything about wildlife conservation, they have to go to the heart of the source, the biologists and the others who work in the agencies and DNRs or whatever iteration of it. Cause I know every agency has a different name. We changed ours here in Virginia. They're the best resources when you want to get to the heart of information like this. Yeah. So I always tell them like report accurately. You want to build credibility with people in hunting conservation. You need to do that. You need to talk to the people and not just come to your own conclusions or cite bad sources that are going to mislead you and misrepresent conservation. But I have seen a little bit of a shift in media, and I'm not asking you to comment, but I'm just making commentary here mm -hmm. that there, there is a noticeable shift amazingly among a lot of legacy media. And I yeah. think it's because I can't claim credit for helping to force them to change it, but there are several like me who, who are um, telling them and urging them like, hey, you need to be accurate. You should talk to the people, listen to the biologists, and maybe slowly but surely they are. So it's encouraging um, to see. Yeah. Think, is there anything else that you want to add for my listeners that they're unaware of that Iowa DW, DNR is doing or anything that people should be aware of going into hunting season if they want to hunt from out of state into Iowa too? Anything you want to dispense? Sure. I'd be happy to talk about um, the hunting opportunities we have here in Iowa. And, you know, it's no secret to people that are familiar with, with whitetail deer hunting in the East that Iowa is a trophy whitetail state. Um, and I think that there's a lot of reasons why this is the case. It really comes down to two things, in my opinion, to speak broadly, is uh, the habitat that we have here and, and also the regulations we have in place. Uh, so I, I'd be happy to, to discuss that a little bit. Yeah, please. Go ahead. In terms of uh, the habitat, uh, so I'll ask you, Gabriella, what, what comes to mind when you think of Iowa in terms of the landscape? For my perception of Iowa landscape. So as I was saying, muscadine is my only experience, and I've driven a little bit from the Illinois side before the Quad Cities area okay. to muscadine. I have lots of friends who live in Des Moines, and I know people from Brownells. And so they tell me that you think of like grasslands, maybe a little bit of prairie. I don't know if you guys have any mountains. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong there. But I think of it as like an ideal place, I would say, for big game hunting. Like you said, it, Iowa is one of the best places for deer hunting. So that's my perception yeah. of it. Am it, I correct there? Right. It, definitely. Uh, the one thing that I would add is we have a lot of farmland <laughs> and, uh, and maybe, maybe, uh, that's an easy thing to overlook when you're talking about habitat, uh, for deer. But as far as whitetail deer, you know, the fact that about 70% of our land area is actively farmed, uh, puts a lot of food resources on the ground for our deer. Um, Basically, that means that nutrition is rarely a limiting factor for deer in Iowa. And so bucks are able to put a lot of those resources into antler growth. So only about 6% of our area is forested. 
Uh, but the majority of these forests are mature oak dominated stands. And that also generates a lot of food for deer in the form of acorns. So, you know, the places that you find deer densities uh, that are the highest, you know, with the highest trophy potential in Iowa, we're talking about the northeastern and southern regions of the state. And, and both of those areas have fairly rough terrain. In the northeast, we're talking about the driftless region. So steep bluffs and coolies and in the southern region, it's more uh, rolling hills with a lot of edge habitat. And both of these places offer a lot of escape cover, which helps bucks reach a mature age class and avoid harvest. Um, so I, I mentioned that regulations also play a big role in why we've maintained the status as a, a trophy whitetail state. So when it comes to regulations in Iowa, we're, we're definitely one of the more restrictive whitetail states in the country. I truly believe that our deer herd benefits from that. So unlike most Midwestern states, we don't offer any firearm seasons within a month of peak rut, which is, of course, when mature bucks are most susceptible to harvest. For any listeners who maybe aren't familiar with uh, deer, the rut is the breeding season uh, for deer. And so that's when bucks are moving the most during the day uh, and are therefore most susceptible to harvest. So the firearms that we do permit are also fairly restrictive. Uh, we currently only allow muzzle loaders, shotguns, and centerfire rifles between 35 and 50 caliber. So that excludes nearly all of the most popular whitetail cartridges that you're, you'd are you hear about, you know, 270, 30-06, 308, et cetera. Um, now, the only exceptions are our special January antlerless seasons, but of course, that doesn't contribute to any antlered buck harvest. So another unique thing about Iowa, and more unique as the years go on is that we don't allow crossbows during archery season except for hunters that are over the age of 65 or have a physical impairment. Uh, you know, I think it's fairly safe to say that crossbows make it uh, easier to harvest deer compared to vertical bows. I don't think many people would argue with me on that. And so this is just another regulation that it protects the quality of our deer herd. Um, and the last point that I'll mention is that we restrict the number of non-residents allowed to hunt in Iowa to only 6,000 hunters statewide. Now for context, Wisconsin, just over the river, has over 30,000 non-resident hunters each year, just in the nine day gun season alone. So the fact that we really restrict the number of people that can come in and harvest deer uh, is just another way for us to you know, reduce competition with our resident hunters and maximize the quality of deer herd uh, to have a high percentage of mature bucks. Uh, but you know, I always, I always want to send the message to non-residents as well. It, you know, we are one of the few whitetail states that limit the number of non-resident hunters, and there's far more demand than we allow for. So we implement a draw system with preference points, and and this is a similar system to many Western states. Um, it can take up to five or six years to draw an archery tag in some of our highest demand units. Uh, others can be drawn in you know one or two, uh, but we're kind of unique in that you can't just, you know, drive here and, and shoot a buck during the season. But I don't want to discourage any non-residents from, from beginning the process of hunting in Iowa. I think that, uh, you know, our demand speaks for itself. We, we have a long list of people who are, you know, happy to buy preference points every year in order to get the chance to uh, come here and, and harvest a, you know, top caliber uh, a buck, or at least have the opportunity to do so. Um, so the best thing you can do as a non-resident wishing to hunt in Iowa is to start buying preference points early as possible. We allow this for about a month in early May to early June. The dates are different every year. Uh, however, you don't have to wait 
all those years to draw an any sex tag just to hunt in Iowa. We have leftover antlerless tags every year in several counties uh, where non-residents can just show up and buy those tags. Now, this would allow someone to get familiar with an area before they, you know, draw the ability to shoot a buck. So, you know, they will be limited to an antlerless deer, but, you know, what better way to scout uh, for when, you know, when it's really game time and you have that buck tag in your pocket than actually stepping foot in an area, you know, learning the ins and outs and, and becoming familiar. So that would be my advice to any non-residents interested in uh, beginning to hunt Iowa. That's great to know. Maybe down the road, I will, but I still have to master hunting here in Virginia. I've had success out of state in Wyoming. I've only gotten a doe <laughs> on with an AR platform uh, in Wyoming. So I have much more ground to make in my own hunting journey. But I know from friends that live in Iowa and travel to Iowa, you guys do have phenomenal whitetail deer hunting. Jace, if people want to connect with you, where can they learn more about what Iowa is doing? Personally connect with you, put out all the information if you can. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my information is is available on the uh, Iowa DNR website under our research section. Um, again, I'm the deer research specialist. Um, if, if anybody wants to reach out, um, my email is jace.elliot at dnr.iowa.gov. Um, the spelling should be available, I'd imagine, with, with the title of the podcast. That's probably the best way to uh, reach me personally. Um, otherwise, you know, the rest of my, uh, professional contact info can, can be found online certainly. And, uh, yeah, I, I would look forward to, uh, to talking with, with any listeners who, who have any questions or, or anything about the content that I covered. Great. And it's honestly very refreshing that there are younger people working in agencies because that's how you keep these traditions and you keep this research and great work continuing. So I'm very encouraged to see more people, Generation Z, millennials working in the state agencies. And I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing what you know and what you guys are up to at the Iowa DNR. Well, it was my pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, make sure you find us on your preferred podcast player. We largely circulate on Apple, Spotify, and countless others, but those are our two big podcast platforms we want to push. Make sure you're subscribed there, especially on Apple. If you like the podcast a lot, go leave us some reviews. We'd be more than grateful to get some five-star reviews from you guys. Moreover, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and a little bit on YouTube. We don't populate there, but connect with us on social media. Find me personally on social media with blue check marks. Super easy to find, and I would love to hear your feedback and know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. Stay tuned for the next episode.